So we are continuing our teachings through the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And if you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, this really is the epitome of Christianity and probably the most well-known teaching of Jesus Christ. Uh, this sermon is Jesus's answer to um, that universal philosophical quest and question that people have been asking since the dawn of time. How can someone truly be happy? Or what is the truly good life? And I think if you were to summarize the theme of Jesus' sermon, it would be this. Flourishing and human wholeness through life in the way of Jesus. See, this sermon is Jesus' invitation and instruction on how we as disciples follow him. You know, Matthew's gospel begins with this picture of Jesus as the king of God's kingdom, declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is among us. And as Jesus declares this, he welcomes any and everyone who will hear him. He says, turn around and join God's kingdom. Now, Jesus isn't just full of hot air, just saying, oh yeah, the kingdom of God is here. But he actually displays this through his mighty deeds. He brings healing, he brings wholeness to every situation and every individual that he interacts with. Jesus brings the healing and wholeness of the kingdom of God. Well, here in chapter five of Matthew's gospel, Jesus then begins to teach his disciples the way of the kingdom of God. And it's Jesus' own way of life that he is inviting us to practice. Jesus actually lived out this sermon. And so Jesus isn't inviting us into religiosity. He isn't inviting us into you know, a set of rules. He is inviting us into a way of life, a way of being. And it is Jesus' own way. That actually what we see and hear taught in this sermon, we can actually see played out in the life of Jesus himself. And so I believe that in this sermon, Jesus is essentially saying, because I am here as the kingdom of God's, excuse me, as the king of God's kingdom, God's new world is coming into being. And once we see the sermon that way, we'll see that the teachings are really habits of heart. They are practices um, that we do to anticipate God's kingdom here and now. And so purity of heart or mercy or peacekeeping are not things that you and I do to earn a reward. They aren't a payment that we make to God. They're not even the rules of conduct now that we've become part of the kingdom of God but they are signs of the life of the kingdom of God at work in us. Now, as I've been studying this section, chapter six of the Sermon on the Mount, it deals with issues of reputation and wealth. It looks at our personal acts of religious devotion and the concerns of daily life. And I believe it needs to be framed by this vision of the Father that we saw at the very end of Matthew 5. Remember, Jesus says that we are to be perfect as our Father in the heavens is perfect. And sometimes we make this mistake of reading the Sermon on the Mount and then we get to that passage right there and we rip it out of its context and we're like, oh my gosh, oh shoot, I have to be perfect. Oh no, 
God, God is pointing at me directly and saying, you need to be perfect. And this is what I feared my whole life, right? God's judgment coming on me. But remember, the context for which Jesus is saying this is he's talking about God's indiscriminate love that he has for people that are good, for people that are bad, for people that are deserving, for people that are undeserving. And he's saying this essentially, because you are children of the Father in the heavens, you need to love like your Father in the heavens. Or essentially, because God has loved you in this way, you also are to and can love others in this way. So Jesus here is inviting us into this way of being, God's indiscriminate love. But I believe that that indiscriminate love of the Father, the character of the Father that Jesus tells us about at the very end of Matthew, needs to kind of undergird what comes in chapter 6. It's an underlying theme, really, and emphasis of the whole sermon, but especially here in chapter six. I mentioned this last week. Matthew's gospel speaks of God as Father 44 times. Now, this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, makes up one-third of those mentions. Jesus speaks of the Father 17 unique times in this sermon and 12 times in chapter six alone. See, the Father, who he is, his character is interwoven all throughout this sermon. It is essential that we read this sermon, that we receive this sermon through that lens of our loving, caring, seeing, forgiving Father who is in the heavens. So as we look at our heart motivations behind not just how we respond to evil, Matthew chapter five, but even behind our religious acts and habits like giving, praying, and fasting, Jesus wants to root our motivation in the beautiful and whole character of our Father in heaven who sees, who knows, who loves, and cares for us more than we can possibly imagine. Now, I mentioned last week that verse one of chapter six, where Jesus tells us to be careful of doing our righteous deeds before others to be seen by them, is kind of a heading for the rest of this chapter. So what Jesus is saying to us essentially is this, he expects that his people will be in touch with and paying attention to the motives behind even the good that we do. So when we give, it's not even about the recipient, but it really is a behind, what behind it, like our heart. Why did we give? What was our motivation for giving? Is it to be praised by others? It is, is it to be seen? Is it to be esteemed and honored by others? Or is it to be like our Father? Is it to be in step with our Father? Is it to be rewarded and honored by our Father? Well, Jesus applies this same teaching now to prayer and he wants to speak to our heart motivations in it. Now, before we talk about our heart motivations in prayer, I think it's important that we just kind of lay a foundation for what prayer actually is, because prayer is really quite a mysterious thing. And we often speak of prayer in mystical, esoteric ways. But the fascinating thing about prayer is it is very, very common in the human experience. 
from sacred to secular, religious to spiritual, nations to people, to the battlefield, to the hospital room, human beings pray. And yet, while it is so commonplace, there is still so much mystery to the whole thing. I imagine if we were to take a poll this morning, many of us would have questions surrounding prayer. In general understanding, prayer is talking or communing with the divine. This is believed by almost all people. In Christian understanding and teaching, prayer is talking to God our Father through the Son, Jesus our Savior, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Now in the Bible, prayer essentially begins with God because God is the first mover. He is the one who has spoken first to us through creation and then also through his word. Through creation, have you ever had just one of those moments, one of those transcendent kind of out of this world moments in your life where you are just so like blown away by something and you just want to give Praise. Do you want to give gratitude to someone or something? Anybody had one of those moments? Maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon, right? And just seeing that, you're just like, oh my goodness. Wow. Like, who are you talking to? Maybe, mom and dad, it was at the birth of your first child. My goodness. Human birth is wild. Isn't it? I mean, pregnancy in and of itself is wild, but birth, that anybody can actually live through that process is wild. I just, yeah, anyway, I won't go, I won't do that to anybody this morning, uh, in fact. Transcendence, though, whether it is a beautiful piece of music, it is a beautiful scene that we see, maybe it's the power and the vastness of the ocean, it's the beauty of maybe our spouse or of our child. There is this experience that all human beings have where it's almost like heaven touches earth, transcendence. And we want to direct our praise, our gratitude towards something. You know what that is? That's worship. And these are moments where God is actually speaking to us of his power of his presence, of his love, of his care for us as humans. But then there's also God's word to us through scripture, where he reveals his specific acts in creation, his righteous judgments, his redemption and rescue, his mercy and grace. And this also brings us to awe and wonder and to burst out in gratitude. Think about the psalmist in Psalm 8. What are human beings that you think about us? When we consider the vastness of creation, the bigness of God, who are we that God considers us? Who are we that God would become human in order to rescue us? Or maybe think about Paul in Romans when he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable are his ways. Prayer is a response to God's word and works, both in creation and in scripture.
I love the late Tim Keller's definition of prayer. He says, prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started through his word and his grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. I love that idea, though, of continuing a conversation. See, Tim is picking up that idea. God has started this conversation, and in prayer, we are simply responding to the God who has already spoken. And as we continue this conversation, it actually becomes an encounter with the living God. Now, in the Bible, we find many different forms of prayer, don't we? We find prayers of thanksgiving and praise. We find prayers of confession prayers of lament or grief. We find prayers of petition and intercession, but all prayer is the same in the sense that is directed to God. Now, of course, prayer is a part of the Christian life. It is necessary for the follower of Jesus not just to talk about God, but to talk to him and to grow in closeness to him through conversation, just as we do in any human relationship, right? Through conversation, we get to know one another. We reveal things about ourselves. Intimacy, deep intimacy actually comes through deep conversation. Now, even here in our passage, Jesus doesn't say if you pray, but when you pray. He assumes that his people will be a people of prayer. And so for the follower of Jesus, it's not just a practice, just something that we do, but it is a way of being, a way of continual conversation and deep dependence on God. That's actually what we are doing in prayer, conversing with our Father, depending upon him. Now, what Jesus teaches here in our passage is the right understanding of who we're speaking to in prayer and the kind of heart that is present in real prayer, true prayer. Remember the context, as we mentioned earlier, is Jesus teaching about true righteousness, the true righteousness of his kingdom and his kingdom people. So here, Jesus begins his teaching on prayer by warning us against doing righteousness in order to be noticed by others, and not in order to be close to the Father, not doing righteousness simply for righteousness' sake or for the sake of our King and the kingdom. And so this morning, we're just going to look at Jesus' two do-not principles that we need to cultivate in order to have a true and deeper righteousness in our prayer life. So I'll cover the bad, and then Richard gets to cover all the good stuff next week. Sound good? All right, so here's Jesus' first principle. He says this, essentially, this is my paraphrase, don't pray for show because the Father sees your heart. So pray honestly. Listen to what he says, and when you pray, Don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret 
will reward you. Now, you might know this, but the Jews have a rich history of memorization and oration going back centuries. From memorizing the Torah with its hundreds of laws to Israel's national story to daily prayers, psalms, and hymns. Uh, in fact, their prayers included daily the Shema prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Blessed is his name whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. They have a handful of psalm prayers that they would pray on a regular basis. And then they also have the Amidah prayer with its 18 benedictions. You know, for the Jewish people, the common practice was to pray three times a day, and it still is, stopping wherever they were praying these prayers. Well, apparently, by Jesus' time, these prayers had become a way to show off your devotion and your righteousness. The depth of your commitment to Yahweh before other people in order to be seen by them. So your righteousness was, you know, in that culture of the day, it was measured depending on how long, how agonized and how passionate, how loud your prayers were. But Jesus, again, just like he'd said last week, he's commenting on this. It's almost as if Jesus is just rolling his eyes at this. God sees right through this. And this approach to prayer actually makes a mockery of prayer, maybe unintentionally, but a mockery of prayer in the sense of it turns God into a means to an end. I am using God and I'm using this incredible gift of intimacy between me and God my Father in order for other people to look at me and to appraise how great I am. You know, we don't have time to talk about this this morning but God will never be a means to an end. He will only be the end. He will only be the goal. He is too great to be anything else. Now, are you guys ready for some more weird Christianity? We did this last week. We had a fantastic time, didn't we? All right, we've got a little clapping over here. Okay, so let's talk about prayer and how stinking weird we can be when we pray, okay? Now, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, and so I'm going to blame this on Jesus, right? This is Jesus' words. This is what he is saying to us, right? So maybe you come from a religious culture or home where prayers like this were common, what Jesus is talking about here, right? People sounding in pain in their prayers when they're not, everything's okay. Dear Jesus. Like, we okay over here? What's going on? You know, just one second ago, we were all good, right? They use a special praying voice when talking to God that doesn't sound anything like their normal voice when they talk. It's like, who are you talking to? What are you doing here, right? Man, I, and I'll tell you this. If you ever try to pray with a non-Christian like this, I mean, they are weirded out to the max. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Another example of this is that they say God's name or different titles for God way too many times for any normal conversation. Dear Father, Lord God, Father, Lord God, Father, Father, Lord God, Father Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, Father God, Lord, Father God. How many of you guys have prayed like this? Be honest, right? And it, look, I'm not blaming anybody. Maybe we've been taught this way. This is what was modeled for us. But when you hear somebody else do it, you're like, you know what? Yeah, that's weird. It is. Think about this. Prayer is a conversation. God is started by his word and by his grace that ends in a full encounter with God. And yet we can do all this kind of stuff, like all of a sudden we're in pain, we're using a special praying voice, we're just saying God's name over and over and over again, almost like incantation. Now even if people don't mean to, and I'm not here to judge the motivations of your heart, I will allow the Holy Spirit to do that work, it comes off showy. And people get the impression, and I've heard people say things like this, wow, how earnest and holy must this person be? And here's, here's the clincher for me. I could never pray like that. Meaning, that is so high above who I am as a Christian. Good. Let it stay there, far away from you, because this is not real prayer. This is not what God intends in prayer. This is not true righteousness in prayer. And again, I'm talking about the heart motivations here. Can there be elaborate prayers? Yes, but you know what? They come from the heart. Secondly, even the most elaborate prayers are still simple. And we'll talk about this next week. The model prayer that Jesus gives us is very simple. Very simple. Anyone can say these words. Anyone can take these words to heart. But sometimes we think the model prayer is John 17, which takes up a whole chapter. We think the model prayer is, you know, passages in Ephesians where, you know, Paul says, oh, now I bow my knee to the Father in heaven from whom every, you know, family on earth is named. And then we go into this long, elaborate prayer. No, prayer is essentially this, a conversation with our Father. Now, of course, if you don't know any better and this is the way you were taught to pray, the good news is God knows. He knows your heart. He sees, and that's wonderful. And this is Jesus' point. It's the heart, the motivation underneath our prayers. And so as an illustration, Jesus actually isn't commanding private prayer or else we would be, or Jesus himself would be, you know, actually not keeping his own teaching here. But as an illustration, Jesus says, instead, go pray in the inner chamber or literally the supply closet in your house. Jesus is obviously using hyperbole to get his point across. He's not telling us not to pray in public, but he's reminding us of the point of prayer. It's not for anyone else necessarily to see or to hear. Jesus' point is that God the Father sees you and sees who you really are. So don't make a show, just be you. Seek God in prayer, not in order to be seen by others for praise or for the recognition that it could bring, but seek Him for Himself. 
This is and should be the great reward of prayer. Being with our Father and cultivating deep closeness with Him. Now, in each of these examples, whether it's giving, whether it's praying, or whether it's fasting, Jesus promises a reward from the Father, and He never tells us what that reward will be. But it's interesting to me that He reminds us that the Father who sees, who knows us personally, individually, will reward us personally, individually. And I think sometimes, right, like we don't want an impersonal reward. No, we want something very specific to our person and to our situation. And guess what? Those are the kinds of gifts that a loving father gives. He gives gifts that are personal to his children, not generic. Ones that deeply resonate with our person and our heart. God promises that those who seek him honestly in prayer he will reward whether that is his presence his face that shines upon us his attention and even more so jesus calls his people to be those who will be honest who will just be ourselves in prayer now jesus second principle is this Don't go on and on in your prayer. The Father already knows. He says this, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So Jesus' principle for us here is pray simply. You know, the pagans or Gentiles that Jesus references believe that they were heard by their gods through much prayer. Going on and on. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, he actually said this, fatigue the gods, wear yourself out with petitions. See, can't you hear even in Seneca, there is a reluctance from heaven to answer. And it was believed and taught that the gods were reluctant to hear prayer unless the prayers were long, elaborate, you know, kind of buttering up the gods. And only when a petitioner had proven their sincerity by spending time in confession, praise, or even quiet, do the gods begin to even listen. It's like that pre-workout you gotta do, you know? And then maybe, just maybe, your prayer will reach to the gods. Jonathan Pennington in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, the prohibition against many-worded Gentile-like prayers is not a new law outlining word length or time length of all praying, something for which we can find counter examples in the rest of the New Testament. He gives examples of Jesus praying all night or you know, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, as well as the history of the church. But rather, this is a call for simplicity over rhetoric. 
for clarity over piled up repetition. Or I love this from Dallas Willard. He says, the Gentiles falsely imagine that mere sounds repeated over and over will gain the desired effect. The word babbling, translated vain repetition in the familiar King James Version, refers to senseless repetition, like that of one who stammers or is babbling and has nothing to do with thoughtfully used liturgy. You know, sometimes people are like, oh, here it is. Like, you should never pray, you know, written prayers. Well, then you should never sing pre-written songs because songs are essentially prayers. The argument doesn't work. And this isn't actually what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus' teaching is an incredible contrast to the other religions of the world. As he says, the pagans, right? They think the more they talk, the more likely they will be heard. Or that somehow there's like these magical words that if we just say them, like in Jesus' name, then automatically that's going to happen. Our God is not a rain God. That's not how the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ relates to his people, to his children. So Jesus says, don't be like them. Well, why? Because your father already knows. He already knows what's inside you, what's going on. Now, sadly, many of us treat prayer no differently. Now, maybe we don't have these like weird sounds and mumblings and things that we do in prayer, but we approach God our Father as though Jesus never came and the gospel never happened. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes we pray like these deistic prayers. We're informing God of every detail of our lives because we don't think God actually knows. We think that, well, God is not here and he's you know in heaven and you know just disconnected from us and so we actually have to inform him on what's going on in our lives god is immune to our pain and our problems this is a deistic prayer right a prayer to the god who is far away but not the god who has come near to us in jesus christ and then this is like so common we've got the angry wrathful grumpy old man god prayer anybody familiar with that one a lot of saying sorry begging him for mercy and just, just to simply hear our cries for help, knowing all the while that he really doesn't like people and just regrets that he ever made human beings in the first place. Oh God, I'm sorry I never read my Bible. Oh God, I'm so sorry, you know, I'm just like such a bad dad. Or, I'm, you know, Lord, I'm just so sorry, I'm just so lazy and I'm just so sorry and I'm just so sorry and I'm just so sorry. Can you imagine, I mean, I'll speak to the parents in the room for just a moment. Can you imagine if this is the kind of weight of expectation that your children lived under? Can you imagine if every time your child came to you, all they said was, Mom, Dad, I'm so sorry. I'm such a terrible kid. I hate myself. I know you're so disappointed in me, and I'm probably really annoying you right now. But if you could just do this one thing for me and just, just help me, you know, I'll, I'll pay you back somehow. What would you think about your relationship? Like, hey, this is really messed up. We're going to go to therapy right now. And yet, this is how many times we pray. 
like God is angry and inconvenienced by us. And then there's also this insecure God prayer. This is probably similar to the pagan prayer, right? Our God needs a lot of buttering up by saying really nice things about him. We bring nice gifts of the good things that we've done to him and a lot of self-deprecation, more sorries and excuses for why we aren't as good as we should be just so he can maybe possibly hear our prayer. Now let me reassure all of us, this is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who Paul calls the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort. Church, do you know, do you know that the Father himself loves you? And not because of any good that you have done. You can't earn his love. You can't lose his love. Do you know that he loves you as you are and not as you should be or even as for what you will be you know we humans we struggle with this kind of unwavering love don't we it's kind of incomprehensible and sadly many of us suffer not only from bad theology but also from bad anthropology when we think of humanity, we often think of words like sinner, evil, selfish. These are true because of the fallen state of humanity, but remember, God created humans first and foremost in his likeness, in his image he created them, male and female. And the most prevalent view that scripture gives us of humans is that they are dearly loved and pursued by God. That is the picture that we have again and again, that human beings are graced. We're gifted with powers, abilities that the rest of creation doesn't have. We're crowned with glory and honor by God. We're gifted salvation, honor. We who are rebels are offered sonship to be sons and daughters of God. This is the most prevalent view of humans in Scripture. So much so that God came himself to remove the barrier and burden of our sin, our evil, and our selfishness that barred us from him. And there on the cross, in the greatest act of love the world has ever known, Jesus bore our judgment and removed the barrier that separated us from the love of the Father. That he takes our place and we get his place, the dearly beloved one. That he was put out so that we could be brought in. He came in order to open up the way to the love of the Father. So that when we call, when we cry, when we pray, he already hears us. So Jesus says, don't pray like the pagans. Your father already knows. Now, I don't know about you, but I love to find like examples of this stuff in scripture. 
Like, okay, what would be an example of what Jesus is talking about? How many of you are familiar with the prophet Elijah? Some of you, okay. So prophet Elijah, he's just this like wild dude, right? Um, we can go to details about this, but Elijah has this ministry basically to bring affliction to this wicked king of Israel. I mean, he's oppressing people, he's murdering people and taking their vineyards. I mean, this guy's super bad. And so Elijah's ministry is actually to pray. And he prays, and guess what? It doesn't rain. And so because it doesn't rain, this king's kingdom is suffering greatly, right? There's no crops, cattle are suffering, right? Business is suffering. And so to make a long story short, this king, you know, has an alignment, um, an, he's allied, wow, can't think of words are hard this morning. He's allied with these pagan deities, the god Baal and the prophets of Baal. And so they're crying and praying and sacrificing and they're trying to get Baal to make it rain because Baal is believed to be the god of harvest. That's what he's believed to be. And so finally, <clears throat> this day comes where Elijah challenges this king and the prophets of Baal. Um, they're gonna have a sacrifice challenge. And they're basically gonna call on their god and Elijah's gonna call on his god, the god of Israel, and basically says this, all right, the God who answers by fire is the true God. And they're like, fair, done, let's do it, right? So they go to this mountain, Mount Carmel, you can still go there today in Israel. And what they do is the pagans, the priests of Baal, they build this altar to Baal. And what they do is all day long, they circle this altar and they're praying and they're calling and they're agonizing and listen to what it says it says they took the bowl that was given them they prepared it they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying oh Baal answer us but there was no voice and no one answered and they limped around the altar that they had made and at noon Elijah begins to mock them oh cry louder for he's a god either he's musing or he is on the toilet or maybe he's on a journey. Perhaps he is asleep and needs to be woken up. And so they cried louder, and then they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said this, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is incredible. You think of the moaning, you think of just the pain that these individuals are going through. This is what they think the gods delight in. Agonizing. Self-deprecation. 
cutting and hurting ourselves just to be heard. Elijah is this example of simplicity in prayer. Answer me, O Lord, is his prayer. He simply prayed and God answered. Jesus tells us here, your father already knows what you need before you ask him. So church, just for a moment, let that sink in. Your father already knows. He sees you. He hears you. He knows you. He doesn't need to be informed about your situation as though he has no clue as to what is going on. He already knows. David speaks of this understanding of God's knowledge in Psalm 139. He says, you search me, you know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts before I have them. You discern when I go out and when I lie down. You're familiar with all my ways before a word is on my tongue, Lord. You know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. This knowledge is too wonderful for me. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. The Father already knows. He knows you completely. You know what? He knows you better than you even know yourself. This should be an incredible comfort to each of us as we pray. Now, here's an interesting thought, though. If the Father already knows, why pray at all? Right? And we have questions about, you know, God's will, God's sovereignty in our prayer. Does our prayer actually affect the will of God? Does it change God's mind? Does it do any of these things? Why should we pray at all? Well, Frederick Bruner, in his commentary on Matthew, I loved his insight about this. Now, remember, we're talking to our Father. It's about a conversation with our Father. It's about growing in deep dependence on our Father. It's about an encounter with God. And he says this, in personal relationships, it is precisely the people who know us best, who sometimes know our needs better than we do, that we can talk most freely so much more with our father in heaven since he already knows all the more freedom to come and talk about it you know i think sometimes we just have the wrong ideas of what we're doing in prayer c.s lewis had this incredible insight in prayer he says prayer does not change god prayer changes me Prayer is about a transformation of my character. Before the God of unwavering love, I am transformed. Before the God who sees me, before the God who already knows my needs, my heart is transformed. My being is transformed. Prayer is an invitation to intimacy with our Father. To be, as Richard will show us next week, to be in step and in line with who our Father is, with what He does. He brings righteousness and justice. He brings His kingdom to earth. He provides. He answers. He brings justice and goodness. And prayer is a way that we can be close and in step with Him. 
I love what Bruner says here. We have this radical freedom to go to God and to talk about it. You know how true this is. Who do I want to talk to when it comes to the deep joys, questions, troubles, doubts, and fears of my life? Do I want to talk to a stranger about that? Like I got to rehearse my whole life. Like, oh yeah, okay. So listen, back when I was three and this happened and my parents did this, this is how I felt. And it's just, you know, the rest of my life's been on this trajectory because no, who do I want to talk to? Well, first of all, I want to talk to my wife. That's who I want to talk to because she knows me best, loves me most, and tells me the hard truth I need to hear. I want to talk to a friend like that, someone who knows me through and through. This is the point. Because of Jesus, we already have the Father's ear, His attention, His unfailing love, His help, His power, His presence. Therefore, when we go to Him, we don't need to use many words. We can just speak simply and honestly to our Father about what is troubling us where we hurt, what we are afraid of, where we lack, where we are in need. So in in closing, these are Jesus' two principles for us in prayer. Pray honestly and pray simply. Sometimes we think there's a right order to prayer, that we have to start a certain way, saying certain things, and then our prayers will be heard. But this simply isn't true. We can come to God as we are and simply pray what is in us. The Psalms, the hymn and prayer book of Israel actually gives us radical freedom and vulnerability to pray what is in us rather than a formula that should be used by us. I love what C.S. Lewis said in a letter to a friend. He says this, it is no use to ask God with factitious earnestness for A when our whole mind is in reality filled with the desire for B. We must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. Or Ronald Rollheiser, I love this. He elaborates on this idea. He says, simply put, if you go to pray and you are feeling anger, pray your anger. If you are sexually preoccupied, pray that preoccupation. If you are feeling murderous, pray murder. And if you are feeling full of fervor and want to praise and thank God, pray fervor. Every thought or feeling is a valid entry into prayer. What's important is that we pray what's inside us and not what we think God would like to see inside of us. Wow. That's the hypocrisy, right? Oh God, well, I know that this is what you want me to be like, but I'm not. So I come as I am. And through transformation, I grow into what God has redeemed me to be, to bear the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. But I must come as I am. I must pray what is in me. It doesn't need to be done in a certain way. You don't need fancy words. Pray what is in you. Your Father in heaven sees and knows. Talk with him about it. Pray whatever you have. Go to your Father who loves you most, who knows you even better than you know yourself, and talk to him. And as you and I follow Jesus' simple principles of how to pray in a way that is both honest and simple, may prayer become a way of being for you and for me. A continual conversation and dependence on the God who loves you, who knows you, and knows what you need even before you ask. Be it unto you 
and be it unto me.